to you another fall break weekend that we are having. So I'm glad that you are here. Hello to those watching us online. Um, it's good to be together. So we're in this series called Leviticus, and everything has led up to where we're going to be today, chapter 16. The book of Leviticus actually um, all the biblical scholars out there, which I am not one, but they say that basically chapters 1 through 15 lead us to, they build up to chapter 16, and then everything that flows from beyond that, chapter 17 through, is, is kind of what do you do based on chapter 16. So if you haven't read it, go and read it later. Really soak it in, because we're going to look at a little bit of it, but actually we're going to look at it as we've been doing every week is through the cross. So we're also going to be in Romans and, and several other places in the New Testament, but it's about what's going on in Leviticus. It's about what's going on here. Now, before we jump into this, um, obviously you're here at 1030, so we made a decision a few weeks ago that while our auditorium can accommodate us, we, we want to be together uh, at 1030. So we're going to be at 1030 for a little while, and we'll Keep everyone posted on that, so be sure and let other people know about that as well. Um, when, the, when you talk about, hey, I'll see you at church Sunday, we want to all be together and, and be in worship together, and there's opportunities coming up that we're excited about. Hey, thank you to those of you who brought um, supplies to go down to Florida this past week, um, Tim Feathers and Cade Parsons, uh, they loaded, I mean, I've... These guys, they've played Tetris. Cade's played a lot of Tetris. I just know that for sure, just based on the truck. Um, but they took a truck down. I think they got back at like 4 in the morning the next day. They went and came back. And um, thank you for those of you who were able to get supplies and provide them. And now we got another opportunity in front of us. Because you heard in the announcement videos, but a couple of weeks ago we talked about who is our neighbor. One of them is the prisoner. And so this coming weekend, there's going to be a, a spiritual weekend at Valdosta State Prison ministering to 12, that, well, okay, they're ministering to a certain group of men who have, are, have earned the ability to be a part of this weekend, but there are about 12,000 inmates in the prison. And so whenever they go and do this weekend, men from our community go and share Jesus for the weekend, they want to make sure that every single prisoner gets a bag of cookies, which might not mean a lot to any of you, but it means a lot to them. And God uses it to bring peace and to bring uh, a sense of uh, reconciliation among them. So get out your, your chef hat and your, 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 hot, your mitts and, and bake some cookies this week if you would, because that's one way, a really tangible way to show Jesus um, to them. So just a reminder of that. I wanted to to point that out. I think we said Wednesday or Thursday? Thank you for Thursday, 12 at noon. Um, you can bring them here or Valdosta Dental Care. Okay, so uh, Leviticus 16, um, like I said, everything leads up. So verse uh, chapters 1 through 5 cover the sacrifices. We've talked about them. Then uh, chapters 6 through 10 talk about the priests and their role in all this. And then build up, build up, build up. And then what happens after, and I want to point this out, after the chapter, after chapter 16, Leviticus takes a turn, and it turns from uh, covering the instructions on how you could even possibly 
even consider coming near to God. It takes a turn after chapter 16, and then it starts to focus on, okay, now here's how you continue to live in the presence of God. Coming near and then living within. How God's people are to live in holiness and it all hinges here on chapter 16, which describes what you may have heard this term before, the day of atonement. The day of atonement. Now, actually, the day of atonement, the phrase, doesn't even appear in chapter 16. But it addresses what this day will become. It actually isn't called the day of atonement until chapter 23, when a list is given of all these high, holy days and moments for how God's people are to live in, in the presence of God. And that's when it's named. But chapter 16 describes what this day is, alike, is like. Now, in, in um, your calendar, we'll tell you this, but the Day of Atonement, it, it's, call, it's, it's called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. You might read it as Yom Kippur. Um, and it means, uh, Yom is the Hebrew word. This might help us a little bit understand what atonement means. It can mean a covering. Uh, it could mean to reconcile. It could mean to ransom. It can mean to redeem or to save. But the fundamental idea of the word is about reconciliation. In Yom Kippur, it's about reconciliation. Particularly in Leviticus chapter 16, it's about that. It's this day when the buildup is happening where God and humanity, all of us, are actually restored in relationship. Because leading up to that, it basically just says, we're not on the same page. God's holy and we're not. We, we are not on the same page. We've got to understand this. We've got to understand what causes us to be unholy or to be unclean. We're gonna, Justin's going to talk next week about the, the whole, all this, what is holy and what is not, and how, we, how, we try to, how God's people need to be aware of it so they can remain and live in the presence of God. Okay, So all this is happening. Um, there was division there. Here's how I, I love this. I don't remember where I heard it or learned it or whatever, but it's stuck in my brain. When you think about the word atonement, think of it like at-one-ment. Because the whole idea is that we are to be at one with God. We've been separated because of our sin, and that the day of atonement makes it possible for us to be reconciled, so now we are at one. And so this is what the Jewish people are, are leading up to. They're learning about this is how we will celebrate the day of atonement. We're going to get into the details here in just a moment because there are this series of sacrifices that are offered up not by just anybody, not by just any priest, but by the high priest. And it brings reconciliation. If you drove down Baytree this past week on Wednesday, you may have seen the Temple Israel parking lot full because this past Wednesday was Yom Kippur and the Jewish holiday. So, before we really dive into this, I want to pose something because it's something that comes up every week and it comes up in my mind. We might be tempted to think to ourselves, okay, this is marginally interesting, <laughs> like, you know, historically. Um, but it's not really immediately relevant right now. Okay? Like you might already be kind of going, 
I'm getting very sleepy. You know, like you're going, okay. But think, so think of it this way, because this is where I kind of, my eyes kind of went up and I was like, okay, here we go. Um, the entire book of Leviticus, okay, not the most popular Old Testament book by any means, but the entire book of Leviticus deals with an internal problem that every single one of us today face at some point, if not at many points in our life. Okay, so that's relevant, right? That, that's a relevant thing if it's talking about right now. And here's what it is. Here is that, that, that internal problem. It's these, these feelings of guilt, feelings of shame about certain things that we've done. Feelings of guilt, feelings of shame about certain things that we have done. And I might even add on to that, or maybe things we know we should have done and we didn't do. Feelings of guilt and shame about words that we have said and we wish that we could take them back. That we could cast them out and never see them again and they could never be heard again. That they could be erased from people's minds. There is, Leviticus deals with this internal thing that every single one of us deals with. And I will say this. If you're sitting here running through your mind right now and you're going, I don't, I don't know if I got any of these, I'll go ahead and name what it is you're dealing with. And that would be pride. But we carry these, guilt of, these feelings of guilt and feelings of shame about things we've done. And can you relate to that? I, I, think, I think you can. Maybe, maybe you are in this moment, you're in this season, this, this time of your life, you actually walked in here today and you're like, there is something eating you up inside because you're dealing with this. Or if you're truly honest with yourself, you know, like you know you are struggling with this. You know... So please let's not think that that historic is that you're not alone. Paul writes, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 7, Paul writes what seems to me like a personal journal, a journal entry. And not only does it, when I read it, does it seem like a personal journal entry, it feels like Paul has just written my personal journal. He says this, beginning in verse 14. Okay, so we're just still talking about, is this even relevant to me? I just want to make this point. He writes in verse 14. So the trouble is not, for it is spiritual and good. Now I'm already going to pause there. How many of us would prefer for the law to change instead of our life to change? How many of us would prefer for some, some hand to come out of the sky with a giant pen and to change God's law versus us changing our life? 
Paul says, no, the law is good. This, this, the law, it, it, the trouble's not the law. The trouble is not what God says is clean and unclean, what God says is holy and unholy. The, the trouble is not with what he requires. It's, that's not the problem. The problem we will see Paul write, and it feels like he's writing mine or maybe your journal as well. The, the law is good. It shows us this. He goes on to write, the trouble is with me. Paul is honest with himself, and that's something I think we need to see. we got to be honest with ourselves. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human. And then he says, a slave to sin. And let's not let that word slip by, slave. Let's not let that word slave slip by because a slave has no rights. A slave has no freedom. A slave has no joy. And their very purpose is to serve another. And Paul says, that's sin. That's, that's who, that's who a, the slave is serving, sin. And then to do what is right. But I don't do it. I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, which is why God gave us the law, friends. If I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Because there's even just like this understanding between right, wrong, good, not good, holy, unholy, right? We understand this. And so he says in verse 17, and this verse used to really trip me up. He says, so I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And it used to trip me up a little bit thinking, is he just like making this like oh, he can do whatever he wants and just go, nope, sin's fault, sin's fault, sin's fault. No, because Paul talks a lot about there being two beings. There is the physical person and the spiritual person. And he's saying that his physical person that is driven by, run by sin is a problem. But his spiritual person has this desire to love God, honor God, worship God. And, and they, they are in a conflict. So he's not just saying, I can do what I want. I'll just keep pointing the finger over to sin. Verse 18, he says, a sinful nature. So he's not saying, oh, God created a horrible somebody. No, he's saying my sinful nature. There's nothing good in a sinful nature. It kind of makes sense. Good, sinful nature. That doesn't go together. And then he says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Is he reading anyone else's mail besides my own? And then he says in verse 20, But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. So he's making that distinction again between spiritual and the physical person. And then he says in verse 21, I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. 
sinful nature. I love God's law with all my heart. And trust me, friends, Paul actually meant that. I don't, I don't know if I could, I mean, he, was, he, he knew the law. He was, he was devout and religious and, and, and accomplished and intelligent, and he knew God's law. And he says, I love God's law. I love it because it set God up as holy. It set God up as, as righteous and true. He loves God's law, he says. But verse 23, but... But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. See the distinction, spiritual and physical. And he says, this power makes me, going back to this whole idea, makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. And all of this, Paul concludes, his, his conclusion to his problem with sin in verse 24, he poses the question, oh, what a, it makes a statement first, oh, what a miserable person I am. <laughs> He's being so honest. Oh, I'm okay. No, I've memorized the law. And look how I obey all the law. And look how I go to the temple. And look what I've done. He doesn't do that. He says, I am a miserable person because of sin. He just he puts it out there. And then he asks the question in the second part of verse 24. He says, who will rescue me? Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Leviticus is relevant to us because that feeling of guilt, that feeling of shame, that understanding of guilt, that struggle with guilt and shame, way, way back in Leviticus, not quite way, as way, way back, but still way back in the book of Romans when we read Paul's journal entry and write this very moment is a universal experience. God is holy. We are not. But he wants to be in relationship with us. But we have got to, we have got to understand that fact. Because otherwise, this is the, we are living in the cheapest grace possible. We are just scooting along in life and not realizing the extent to which God has gone to be in relationship with us. It's like we're like, okay, cool. Thanks, Jesus. So right in the center of Leviticus is the ceremony, the day of atonement, at one that day of reconciliation, that day of, of restoring relationship. That, that meaning, it was so well known that they just, uh, the Jewish people just called it, they just called it Yama, the day. It was the day, it was that day of the year, that day of the year when they understood that their sins were covered. That's a 
That's a high day. That is a holy day. That's a big day. If you knew that there was one day a year when your sins were covered, wouldn't you be looking forward to that day? Wouldn't you be celebrating that day? Wouldn't you be, if all that guilt and shame and, and regret and things in your life that you knew that, oh man, I just haven't really, and I'm, I'm struggling with this, and you knew that day was coming, wouldn't you be excited about Yama? To be reconciled with God because the law proves how we are separated. And on that day, yes, the priests offered sacrifices. Yes, they did these things in the outer court and in the inner court. But on the day, Yama, the day of atonement, only the high priest, only the high priest went in. Not just a part of the temple, part way in, you know, but the high priest went into the holy of holies where the presence of God was. And it was in that place the high priest made the sacrifice to cover all of Israel's sin. They needed it. They need it. We, we need that. We understand that need for that. Now, I said how you can think of atonement at being at one and and the different words that we are more, more familiar with, like reconciliation and all that. But here's the definition of atonement. Atonement means men's or reparation made for an injury or a wrong. So something happened, an injury occurred, a wrong occurred, and that needs to be mended. It needs to be, it needs to be handled, taken care of. It means a repair done for the sake of a damaged relationship. And that's exactly where we are apart from God. That's exactly where we are in, because of sin in our lives. We are living in a damaged relationship. And so as Yama begins, there was this meticulous, and you read this in chapter 16, meticulous preparation that the high priest went through. A week before the day, Yama, a week before the high priest separates himself from everybody, his family, uh, the other priests, he goes into seclusion. He's taken away from his home. He's taken everything. Why does he do this? So that he can avoid being defiled in any way. So he can avoid being unclean in any way. Accidentally touching something, accidentally eating something, a, a grain of something getting into something he's eating that is not clean. So he is, he, he's put away. He, he takes himself away. He, he's, he's only brought, he's brought clean food. It's it's, it's a, there's a whole side thing of how the priest makes sure they prepare the clean food. And, and he washes his body and he prepares his heart in prayer. And the reason for this is because if the, if the priest doesn't do everything exactly the way God's law, which is good, says, they died. And we, we know that. We know that Aaron's sons Offered up an, uh, put up an offering that was not how God prescribed, and they died. So this was very meticulous. 
So a week before that happens. Now, the day before Yama, the Day of Atonement, this is a big day. If you are an Israelite, you're looking forward to this day. People would come from all around to witness what they were able to see on the Day of Atonement. The night before, the high priest would stay up all night long praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. His only focus was God's word and prayer. And then the next day, he would bathe from head to toe. And then he would dress in pure, unstained, white linen. It was meticulously looked after and made sure that it was right. No mixed fabrics, nothing like that. Pure. And he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would enter in. And he would offer an animal sacrifice. And that first sacrifice that he offers was to God to atone or pay for his own sins. Not anyone else's. He's, he's, not, he's not even gotten to Israel yet. He's first going before God and saying, here are my sins, Lord. I'm making this sacrifice. I, I want to repair this. And so he would do that. And then there's a call for another sacrifice to be made, and that is for his priests. Because they have been dealing with just all sorts of nastiness for a year. People bringing their sacrifices to the temple. It wasn't a clean place. And so now the priests need to be made clean. Still hadn't even gotten to the whole nation yet. So it starts with him. But in between him making a sacrifice for himself and making a sacrifice for the priests, you know, he doesn't just go, here's, here's goat number one, go through the motions, and then go, okay, goat number two, come here. No, no, after his sacrifice for his own sins, he leaves the Holy of Holies, He strips those clothes. He bathes again from head to toe in a very ceremonial fashion. He's given new linens, pure linens. He puts those back on, or he puts those on. He goes back into the Holy of Holies, and he makes that second sacrifice for the priests. And you might guess, he doesn't after that turn around and go, okay, where's goat number three? No, he leaves the Holy of Holies again. He strips down. He bathes again from head to toe. He puts on, again, the new pure linens. And he goes into the Holy of Holies. And this was all done kind of in public. I mean, he's not walking around naked or anything. But this is kind of in public where people see him going in and out. And they know what's going on. And there's a reason for that, because, again, if you're an Israelite, you want to know, I hope, I, I pray, I pray that he, he is pure in heart. I pray that he has fasted and, and done, I pray that, that that linen he's wearing right now is truly pure. Ooh, this is, because this is going to cover me. You're invested in this. And so they're watching this. The temple's crowded. Those, those in, a, in attendance are there, and they, and they are fully in because he is their representative before God. No one else can represent them except for the high priest. And they wanted to make sure everything was done properly and pure, with purity and all of this. 
This is what God says to Moses after the several of these sacrifices have happened. In verse 34, God says to Moses about the Day of Atonement, he says, because he's telling him, this is how you will do this. This is a permanent law for you to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord. And this is the part I really want to emphasize for us is, he says, God says to Moses, once each year, once a year, once a year, 365 days. So you know that your sins are covered on Yama, the day. But then you live with 364 other days where you are not so sure. Can you come and make sacrifices for the things that you know? Yes. But is your heart pure? Have you sinned? Have you been angry? Have you had pride? Have you lied? I mean, how much of this? Like, have you, were you dishonest in your business practices? I mean, on and on and on we could go. Your thoughts. 364 days you live under going, oh, I can't wait till the next yama comes along. And we read what Paul wrote, right? And some of us are going, I, he, he, that's me. And all of these sacrifices and rituals. Now, there's a whole side thing I didn't even really necessarily put a lot into my notes, but there's actually two goats that are brought for the final sacrifice for, for the people of Israel. One is to the, be the, 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 the slain animal, for the blood to cover as it's required. And the second animal is actually two hands are placed on that animal's head. And instead of being sacrificed, that animal is sent out into the wilderness. And they signify that now you're, the sin of the people is no more. It's gone. It's, it's taken off. It's out of here. And the blood has covered it. So, so we're good. I mean, this is this what happened on, on Yama, the Day of Atonement. But all of these sacrifices and all these rituals, in Leviticus, they symbolically point, they accomplished a number of things, symbolically. First of all, they, they, they symbolically show payment. They show a payment for wrongdoing. There was a cost. There was a debt that was owed for wrongdoing. A ransom had to be paid. That's that whole reparation word I, that was in the definition of atonement. You got to pay. You have to pay for your sins. And so a, a goat was slaughtered for sin. It's showing that sin was paid for because a goat cost money. It was livelihood. It was all of this. It showed the cost. Now, there's a theological term for this, a, a, con a concept for this, that we call justification. We are justified. It means that literally there is no more claim against the guilty. Well, isn't that good news after reading Romans 7? Isn't that good news when you realize in yourself, in your physical self, and you roll that around, that, man, I, this, I don't see how I'm getting off this merry-go-round. See, there's justification that is brought that says the claim that, that, that everything that the law says is guilty, 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 guilty. Justification is brought in by the sacrifice, and it says you're not guilty anymore. No more guilt. 
right? Let, let's look at that through the lens of the cross. That's what we've been saying every week. Let's look at this through the lens of the cross because there's a ransom paid. This is what Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says. I'm going to uh, offer several verses here. I encourage you to write these down and look at them later. Mark 10, 45, this is what it says. Looking at, at what we see in Leviticus through the cross, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. Payment for the wrongdoing. Ephesians 1, verse 7. He is so rich in kindness and grace that what did he do? He purchased our freedom. We were slaves to sin. He purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. So not only are we no longer a slave, but we're forgiven. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life. That's why we talk about belief so much, why it's so important. Shedding his blood, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and he did not punish those who sinned in times past because the ultimate sacrifice was coming. So there's this, what symbolically we see in Leviticus, we see come to fruition, reality, in the New Testament through the cross. So there's the ransom. There's also this repentance. This, one of the, re, the symbolism of Leviticus is, okay, Israel, turn from your sin. Instead of just going, I'm going to add up an account and let it just, just rack up, you know, lists and lists and lists for the next 364 days. no. Be aware of your sin and turn from it. Be aware of what is unclean and unholy. Be aware of this and avoid it. Work on it. This is what, he's, this is what they should have learned. This is all about repentance, turning away. Going, you know what? I struggle with that. I'm going to turn away from that. This is a, this is a pitfall for me. This is, a, this is a gray area for me. Turn your feet and go another way. That's the symbolism that was taught in Leviticus. Well, through the cross, what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, is that he, Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. He carried it. We follow in his footsteps. He carried that. We repent because of what he's done. And then another thing that happens in Leviticus symbolically is that there's this symbolic purification. It's for the community. And, and, because again, the temple, it's, it's, it's gross. It's, it's been... Actually, a lot of different uh, scholars say it's been vandalized. That's what the term they use. And we think, oh, it's been spray-painted and the window's you know, broken. No, it's been, it's been contaminated with sin. 
So there, there's been a ransom. There's a need for repentance. The symbolism points to. There's the symbolism now we see of this purification that needs to occur. And this is what Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says. We're looking at this through the cross. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. To cleanse us. And to make us his very own people. Totally committed to doing good deeds. That goat sent into the wilderness illustrates this concept of cleansing, of being purified. It's no more. It's gone. It's not, you didn't shove it back in the closet and you start to smell it later. No, it's, it's gone. So God doesn't just pay for our sins. He removes them. And then, and this is, to me, this is what it leads up to is that, yes, there's ransom and there's repentance and there's this purification that happens, but the symbolism in Leviticus is that God, he wants to maintain his presence with his people as it was in the beginning in the garden. He wants that. But he, he, he can't do that without compromising his divine justice. And so the relationship's broken and he wants to restore that covenant relationship. That's the whole point, the symbolism that we see in Leviticus. And you look at that through the cross, and you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God lives in you. He wants us. This is why he brought the Holy Spirit So now the Holy of Holies is within us. There's ransom, there's repentance, there's purification, there's this covenant relationship, and it's all restored through Jesus. It's symbolism in Leviticus, and it becomes real through the cross. This is all about Jesus. You don't have to look very closely to see the fingerprints of Jesus all over this. Go and read Leviticus chapter 16 and read it and think about what Jesus has done. Think about his last week as he led up to uh, going onto the cross. And you'll see this. You read the events of Passion Week in, in, in several of the gospel accounts. I would, I would recommend Matthew Chapters 21 through 28, read what happened in Passion Week and you'll see that what Jesus is doing is he is staging his own day of atonement. Just like the high priest, Jesus began to prepare for a week beforehand. We know that. And like the high priest, he stayed up all night before the night of the sacrifice and prayed. He wasn't clothed in expensive linens. We know that. He was stripped of the only garment that he had. And, and where the people came to in expectation to be redeemed and restored in Leviticus, many people came to watch a spectacle. Some came because they believed, but not most. Right after the fact, he was abandoned by most. Talking about the temple, 
When Jesus breathed his last and he said, it is finished, the temple, the temple itself responded. This is the great high priest. That curtain that separated God from humanity that we read about in Leviticus, now we see through the cross, through Jesus, that when he said it is finished, he completed the sacrifice, that that separation was not intended to remain anymore. I mean, the temple itself responded. That thick curtain, gone, torn in two. And for the first time in the, in the history of humanity, outside of the garden, the way to God was available for everyone. Leviticus 16 says that when, when Aaron was done with the atonement ceremony, because he was the high priest, he was to take off his linen. Well, you know, when the disciples came and ran to the empty tomb, what's the first thing they saw? The linen what he had been put in as his burial clothes. Jesus had. What verse 34 of Leviticus 16 points out, you don't have to just know this, remember, just once a year, friends. Once a year in Leviticus. And so the true ceremony, the, what the Day of Atonement has always pointed towards through Jesus was now finally over. It was truly finished. And Leviticus paints for us this picture of God's overflowing grace. It's not cheap at all. It is not cheap at all. It's expensive. It's extravagant. As the band comes back out and we take just a little bit of time to respond in our hearts and in our minds in worship. If you go to the altar and spend time in prayer if you as Justin says a lot you make that seat where you are the altar and you come before the Lord and you say thank you hear this the, the, the book of Leviticus is a story of what God did to rescue sinful humanity and what God has done to rectify the problem of regret the problem of shame, the problem of sin. Paul asks in verse 24, Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will get me off of this horrible merry-go-round of my life? Who? And he answers his own question. In verse 25, he says, thank God, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, so you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Would you close your eyes and hear these final words out of Romans chapter 8? So I read this and then we pray. Actually, hear these words as the prayer. You don't need any extra from me. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus. We pray, we believe, we repent, we confess, we worship. Amen.